We are justified by faith alone. It can't be that simple. Sometimes we forget how strange our gospel sounds to those around us. We believe that all humanity has offended an infinitely good God and therefore stands under the infinitely just wrath of God. We also believe that no moral code, no religious devotion, nor anything else is sufficient to save a person from his wrath. What's to be done then? What should a person do to be saved? The person hearing the gospel listens eagerly to hear the response. Some expect to hear a set of new tasks that they must perform. Others expect to be told of a new set of moralistic rules to follow. Still others expect to have to jump through hoops of a sinner's prayer and all these different things that they have to say yes to before they can actually be saved. But when asked the question, what must I do to be saved? The gospel answers, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. On occasion... In my experience, when I'm sharing the gospel, a listener will be so bold to respond, that's it? Just belief? It's almost too good to be true. After hearing such a harsh description of evil and our rebellion and the terrible consequences of our sin that deserve hell and wrath and judgment, it's a bit of a shock to hear that our guilt can be wiped away by trusting in Jesus. Now, for those of us that have believed that for some time now, we've just accepted that. But I think it's helpful to hear just how, how too good to be true that is from a different person's standpoint. This will help us understand Romans, why he's got to do such work in convincing his readers that justification truly is by faith and faith alone. Paul tells us if you work for salvation, you will receive your due, which is judgment. But for those who stop working for it and instead trust in the one who justifies the ungodly, justification is freely offered as a gift, not as a wage. As we will see in Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 8, Paul's claim that there exists a righteousness apart from the law is not without evidence. It is a firmly grounded argument. It is a truth that is well established from the beginning of redemptive history. Now, I love Romans because it does something that many of us are not good at. It argues incredibly well. Does anybody else want to admit that they're a terribly bad arguer? I, I mean, I am. You can ask my wife. Okay, I'm a terribly bad arguer. And I have learned to take some of my cues from Paul in order to better arguments. While most of us have experienced bad arguments, there are nothing more than personal attacks. Good arguments seek to convince and persuade someone of the truth. Bad arguments are like back alley knife fights, right? Which is just a whole bunch of chaos and stabbing each other and blood and it's gory, right? But good argumentation is like a fencing match where there's strategy, there's well-placed hits, there's, there's a intention behind every move. It's an art, not an attack. Paul models this well. Typically, a good argument includes identifying the problem, making a claim, explaining the grounds for the claim, 
And then fourth, providing representative examples of that claim. How do we know that claim is true as we see it in life? And then you end by looking at the ramifications for that argument. Has Romans not been structured in that way? Romans chapter 1 to chapter 3 states the problem. Both Jews and Gentiles are unrighteous and therefore stand under God's just wrath. At the end of Romans 3, he then makes his claim. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's his premise. That's Paul's argument in Romans. That there is a righteousness to be had apart from the law. That you need not work for it. You need not earn it. There's a righteousness, a justification to be had through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now throughout the rest of that section, Paul then lays out the grounds for how righteousness can be manifested by faith in Jesus. Namely, as Brandon so uh, accurately preached last week, Jesus has become the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. In Romans 4, 1 through 8, Paul now moves to give his readers some representative examples that support his claim. Right? We expect this part of the argument to come. If someone's going to make a bold claim and then explain the grounds of the claim, we're then going to say, okay, well then give me some examples that show that your claim is true. We want some samplings to show that your argument stands. Now, in making an argument, asserting a premise is not enough unless there are sample cases to validate that truth. Anyone in the medical field and doing research in the medical field can tell you that's true. Anyone doing law studies and looking for the precedence of law history will tell you that's true. You must have a precedence. You must have representative examples. And Paul, in this text, uses two irrefutable examples for how justification by faith is not a brand new concept. It's a truth that finds its roots in the very origins of Israel's redemptive history, reaching all the way back to Abraham and to David. Paul's citing of Abraham and David as examples of people who were counted righteous because of their faith is pure genius. I mean, this is like the nail in the coffin for justification by faith. Abraham was revered as the forefather, the pinnacle of Israel history. Like he is, he is the one that is the mascot of what it means to be Israelite, to be given a covenant promise from God, to be blessed by God. What God did for Abraham sets the trajectory for what God will do for all of Abraham's children throughout history. The redemptive promises made to Abraham were the central hope that all future blessings would funnel through Abraham's son, restoring blessing to all the nations. So he goes all the way back to Abraham. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes to David. The ideal king himself, the golden king, who is the the first example of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. The first example of what it means to reign in a way that represents God's reign. And through him, all messianic expectations come. After David, the entire Old Testament looks for a brand new David to come. So he, he points these two people out, Abraham 
and David as exhibits A and exhibit B in order to show that justification by faith is true. What God did for Abraham and David, he now offers to all who put their trust in the son of Abraham and the son of David, Jesus Christ. Okay? Now to solidify his point, that sinners are counted righteous by faith, not by works, not by what they've done, that they're counted righteous by faith. Paul goes, let's turn to exhibit A, and he pulls back the veil. Now, in, in, in seeing this veil, you see exhibit A, you know he's got examples up here, and you're thinking, okay, who does Paul have as an example that justification's by faith? I would have guessed Rahab, right? Rahab trusted in the God of Exodus and the God of Israel and, and put her faith in him and was therefore passed over when the men came into Jericho. I might have put forward Ruth. Ruth is the one that said, your God will be my God and who sought refuge under the wings of the Israelite Redeemer. But he doesn't go to Rahab and Ruth. That would almost be too easy, too expected. He pulls back the veil and you can almost hear his readers gasp. Oh, it's Abraham. Really? I thought Abraham was justified by circumcision. I thought Abraham was justified by obedience. No. Paul says Abraham is justified by faith alone. Shola fide has roots that goes all the way back to patriarchal soil. It finds its nutrients in the book of Genesis. If we think God acts differently in different periods of time, Paul demolishes that here. And says Abraham was justified in the same way we all are. By trusting in God. He says this, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Again, he's anticipating a primarily Jewish concern. So you might not have had this concern, but the Jews did. If his gospel somehow contradicts God's past redemptive work, as we've seen over and over and over, then Paul has a gospel that's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. That's problematic, isn't it? I mean, after all, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. We're, we're supposed to expect God to work in a very similar fashion. Even if it looks new, it still needs to be in line with what God has done in the past. It can't just be a rabbit trail. It can't just be plan B. It's not like... We can present the gospel as if there was plan A where God was wrathful and judgment towards Old Testament people and they had to obey to be justified. And now God changed his mind and now he's making it faith. It's never that way. There's only ever been one redemptive plan. Only ever been one means of salvation. You guys ready? Faith alone. Not works. How can this be true? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham obeyed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Is that what it says? Abraham was circumcised as God told him to be, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Is that what it says? Come on, guys, we're a little more interactive than that, right? Is that what it says? 
Abraham obeyed God's call to go to the land that God had showed him, and God counted that as righteousness. Is that true? That's not what it says. Paul takes us back to Genesis 15, and it says this explicitly. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's logic here is impeccable. If Abraham's justification, his right status and his relationship with God was up to his own efforts, then it is not according to God's promise and grace. It is according to works. However, as Paul has already shown in chapter 3, verses 27 through 28, all boasting is excluded. Do you have anything in and of yourself, or did Abraham have anything in and of himself to brag about? Paul says that if justification was by works, or if it was ever by works, then whoever earned their justification has a reason to boast before God. Literally has a reason to puff up that proud chest and say, look what I did. Well, no one would go so far to say that Abraham has a right to do that. None of us have a right. We do not have a righteous fortitude. We do not have a moral bank account in order to be able to claim that we can earn God's justification. None of us. Not even Abraham. So by taking us all the way back to Genesis 15, he shows us that even with the picture-perfect Israelite Abraham, that even the picture-perfect Israelite Abraham, the forefather of the faith, must have a righteous status that is established by God through faith and not by our actions. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Now, understanding the words in this quote is helpful in tracking Paul's logic to our own justification. Abraham believed God. Now, the concept of believing in the book of Romans has nothing to do with mere sent. It doesn't mean that Abraham merely agreed with God about things. It doesn't mean that Abraham agreed that God was God. It doesn't mean that Abraham just had a mental affirmation that God could do what he said. No, it is a absolute trust. As Martin Luther said, Abraham believing God meant trusting God always and everywhere in every circumstance. When God promised Abraham a future redemptive offspring through whom blessing would be restored to the world, He believed God. He trusted him that it would be so. Now, what was the result of his trust? Genesis 15 and Romans 4 says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the word counted, the Greek word logizomai, is Paul's favorite word in this section of Romans. It appears no less than five times in eight verses, which when you're reading scripture, that kind of uh, uh, of coupling, that, that kind of uh, correspondence means that this word is incredibly important. It can mean a couple of things. It can mean counted, it can mean considered, or it can mean credited. Now that last option is the one that stuck out to me as I was reading through it. Especially seeing that that Greek word, logizomai, is more of an accounting term. Any accountants in the room? We got Adam Brown here. Are you the only accountant in the room? No, you're not. Yeah. Um, Accountant. Rodney's an accountant. There you go. We got two elders that are accountants. So they, they understand these accounting terms. 
By way of analogy, the, the, the reason that we think of logismi, must think of it as this accounting term, is because it, it's, it's pointing to the fact that we are bankrupt. Have you ever thought about that? How many, how many, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been in fear of bankruptcy? I mean, the fact of the matter is bankruptcy means that you have, you have nothing. You, you, your, your assets can't save you. You are literally in the hole. You're in the red. You're going to have to basically call out for mercy because you can't pay your debts. So if we're thinking about legitimate as credit, if a righteous status before God could be purchased by his works, by way of analogy, Abraham's wallet is empty and his credit score is so bad, so infinitely poor that he can't afford to even borrow righteousness. He has nothing in and of himself to purchase the righteous status. However, because a righteous status before God cannot be bought by Abraham's good works, God did what? He credited his faith as righteousness. That's good news for all of us whose righteousness is an empty wallet. All of us who have sin, all of us who bear the guilt and shame of the things that we have done, all of us who have rebelled against God and have gone into the infinite debt, the fact that God can take faith and credit it when we have no credit score to speak of. To think of that, God will look at faith and trust in him and count that, credit it as righteousness. When did that become a mundane truth in the Christian community? When did we just get blank-eyed about that? That's something to, to stir up our hearts. Abraham was a sinner, deserved hell, came from a family of moon worshipers. And yet he is credited with a righteousness that is not his because he trusted God. How was Abraham saved? In the same way you are, by faith. Abraham's faith was one that looked forward to the coming son through whom blessing would be established. Our faith is one that looks back to the advent of Jesus, the son of Abraham, through whom blessing was won on the cross. It's the same faith, just from different vantage points. Abraham, David, and all the Old Testament saints look ahead. They didn't understand it completely how it worked. We actually know more than they did at their time. They didn't know what his name would be. They didn't know how it'd be accomplished. They didn't know anything. All they knew was that a redemptive son would come by the grace of God, and they looked forward to that promise. We look back, we know his name. We know how he did it. We know the result of it. We know the cross, we know about Golgotha, and we know about the empty tomb. We know how it works. They were saved with the same forward-looking faith. We're saved with a backward-looking faith. Justification comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. And we learn this from Scripture alone. It goes all the way back. Reformed faith doesn't go back to Martin Luther. It's not like he invented it. The solas don't go back to just the 16th century. 
It goes back to Abraham. And even further back to Genesis 3.15, when God first gave the Proto-Evangelion and said, I will give a son who will crush the head of the serpent. And in doing so, will take a fatal bite for humanity. Now, that wasn't enough. Paul presses his logic even further. So he gives Abraham as an exhibit, but then he goes on to explain, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That same word is what he's owed, okay? And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He brings the argument from Abraham back to us. He has already claimed that Abraham's righteousness was based on faith. And if it had anything to do with obedience, then Abraham has something to boast about. Righteousness would be what Abraham has earned if it was based on obedience. What Abraham is due. In the same way, if our status before God is based on our goodness, our morality, our religiosity, then justification would be to our glory, not God's. Do you understand why we have such a struggle with this justification by faith, we like to reserve some sort of credit of our own. We don't like to be in the helpless position. There's a reason we're constantly looking for ways to show why God should show us mercy. Why God should give us his blessing. Why God should allow us into his presence. Well, I'm a fairly decent person. I do all the right things. I provide for my family. I pay my, my bills on time. I vote in the right way. I love those around me. I do all the right things. So God should let me in to his presence. Over and over again, we have to come back to the fact that if that's true, then salvation is your reward, your paycheck, not a gift. Not a gift. In, in essence, the danger of it is that if God somehow saves you and his grace is because of who you are and what you've done, then it flips God into being the debtor, not you. Right? God owes you salvation if it's based on your works. God forbid that we would ever treat God as a debtor. He owes no man anything. We owe him everything. So, be careful what you wish for. Because if salvation is about your wages, well, think about what you've done. And the sin that you have accumulated in your own life. And then think about Romans 6.23. For the paycheck, the wages of sin is... Do you really want to be paid what you deserve? You really want God to consider all that you've done? When it comes to salvation, you want God to take into account, look at everything I've done, God. He sees it. And it is a grace he doesn't take into account. We don't want God to look at our works. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Paul is intentional To point out that faith properly placed is a faith that trusts the one who justifies the good-hearted people. Anybody got a challenge with that? It's a faith that justifies 
the good old boys. That's not what he says. He's intentional to point out that faith properly placed is a faith that trusts the one who justifies the ungodly. They're justified while they're ungodly. They're loved while they're still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Credited with righteousness, even while we're still wicked, evil, ungodly people. God does not justify good workers, but sinners. Is that good news in your life? This is why the gospel is called good news. Our righteous status before God is not dependent on our works. It's dependent on faith. I will get redundant in this sermon because it is something that has had to be hammered into us time after time after time. It is the one who does not work for his salvation, but trusts the one who justifies the ungodly that is given the gift. Faith credited as righteousness. Now, there's a lot of people here this morning, and there's a lot of ways that we tend to respond to our need for salvation. First, there's the approach that we might call the self-pay approach, right? For those of you that have medical insurance, you know these three different approaches that we're going to talk about. Self-pay, right? Where you, this group believes that they have earned up a merit, a wealth of merit, and they continue to try to earn up that wealth of merit so that when the day comes, they will be able to pay their own way through the surplus of their own goodness and righteousness. They're the self-insured, right? The self-insured. They can back any kind of emergency in their own life. Now, the problem is, is Paul has already spent the better part of three chapters showing why such hope is foolhardy. No one is good, no, not one. How can you be self-insured of your own goodness from your own goodness, on the day of judgment, when it clearly says that no one is good, no, not one. No one is righteous before God. Whatever surplus we store up in this life, we are still infinitely in the red before God. You realize you could never sin again, but the sins that you have committed have already put you so far in the red, you cannot buy your way out of it. Your morality, your goodness, anything in you, you are still bankrupt. You do not have enough. Self-pay is not an option. I'm pleading with you to think about which of these approaches that you're approaching God with. A second approach is that there are those that approach their need for salvation as if all they need is financial assistance. Financial assistance. In other words... These are people that have not yet grasped the fact that they have nothing to offer. They would not go so far to say that Jesus is unimportant or that they don't need Jesus. But Jesus isn't enough, though. It's Jesus plus my good works. So so what we do is we, we live our whole lives doing good, earning merit, having good values, Having, trying to be good people, and we try to stir, st- store that up so that when we get to heaven, we bring that, and then Jesus fills in the gap. That's far more common in churches than you'd think, because it's not an outright discredit of Jesus. But the danger of it is it's the her- heresy of Jesus plus. What I have plus what Jesus gave. And there's some of us that are approaching 
salvation like that. We have something. He has the rest. He'll float us in heaven, in other words. So, so when we don't have enough, he'll put his works on top of it, and then it's enough. My friends, that still falls way short of everything the Bible has to say about yours and my sin. We have nothing. Bankrupt means empty. Can I just plead with you to see that about yourself because your eternity is at stake. If you are self-pay or financial assistance model, when it comes to the righteous program of God, you will fall short. You have nothing. There's only one approach to salvation that is biblically sound. And it's that of debt forgiveness. I have nothing to pay. All all my goodness, all the ways I'm different from all these other people in the world. All these ways that I dress better, act better, watch better TV, listen to better music, drive a better car, go to better places, have a better house. Uh, all, the, all these things that I have that are better than everybody else, guess what? It's still jack squat. Trisha, we, we, you know, yeah, we normally get here. Yeah. I normally have something to email an apology for, so. <laughs> we have nothing. And it's only those who know they have nothing and know that they are bankrupt of righteousness that are in a perfect position to receive the debt forgiveness that's offered in Jesus alone. Whatever approach you may have to your need of salvation is of infinite eternal importance. The self-paying Pharisee who counts his work as wealth gets what he deserves, an unjustified life. Rich young men who know that Jesus holds the key to eternal life, but still retains a hope that his merits will be credited to his own salvation, walk away saddened to hear that their merits are not enough. You see, the rich young man thought that Jesus was important. He had the key to eternal life. And yet he wanted to bring Jesus into what he already had. And it wasn't enough. The reality is, That's only wicked tax collectors that cannot even lift their eyes to heaven. And Samaritan women who come in the middle of the day to the well because they're too ashamed to be seen by other people. Who acknowledge their deficit. Who acknowledge their bankruptcy. Who throw themselves upon the mercy of God. Who have their debts forgiven and go home happy. I mean, that's at the end of the day. I don't have to worry about the self-pay. I'm not coming to Jesus for financial assistance when it comes to righteousness. I'm coming to him for debt forgiveness. I'm in the red. Will you cover? And that's exactly what he offers. Jesus forgives debts. And it's only by trusting in Jesus that our debt can be forgiven. That's what it means to be gospel-centered people. Now, everyone knows that more than one example is needed to prove a claim is true, right? If you just give, if you're given an argument and you just give one example, well, that's one isolated example. That's, that, that could be a, an anomaly, right? That's what we call that in argumentation. You just pointed out one anomaly. But you're going to have to give more than one example to prove that something's generally true. Well, Paul's like, okay, fine. Well, let's come to exhibit B. 
And we're thinking, okay, now it's time for Ruth Rahab. And he pulls back the curtain. And again, you hear gasp. Oh, it's David. So not only do we get Israel's forefather, we get Israel's picturesque king. You know, David, the little guy that killed Goliath. The guy that danced on the way into Jerusalem as the ark came in. That guy was saved by faith, not by works. Paul explains how David serves as proof of justification by faith. Just as David also speaks, so he, he, he quotes Abraham, and Genesis 15 says, Abraham speaks of this. David says the same thing. The blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You hear David just kind of basking in that goodness? This is the Old Testament, mind you. This isn't New Testament. This is Old Testament gospel, which is the same gospel that we have in the New Testament. When you read Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, you see that David highlights nothing about works. Nothing about works. Forgiveness of transgression and the covering of sin is a blessing, a grace, not a wage. And David would know because his sin with Bathsheba from a legal standpoint was enough to kill him. It's enough to wipe out his line forever. And yet because God is good and because God is gracious, God chooses not to credit David with his sin, but instead credits him with forgiveness. He uses three different concepts. The first word that's used is a lifting off in the Hebrew. If you go back to the Hebrew, you see the sneeze. Right, that, that word is lifting off, as in taking off a burden of guilt. The second word that's used is conceal, literally to like put away and cover up. Right? To to choose not to look at something, to 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 pull a veil over something so that it can't be seen. Paul's careful to include verse verse two in this though, which says that blesses the man who the Lord does not count. In in the Greek version of the text, it's logizomai, the same word Paul loves to use. Blesses the man that the Lord doesn't consider, count, credit his iniquity. All you sad and depressed Christians, can can I speak hope to you right now? The Lord sees not your sins. He knows them. He's perfectly, see, he's got 2020 sight better than 2020 sight. But because your sins have been paid for and already punished, God has this double jeopardy system that you will not be punished for the sins he's already punished. He might discipline, he might draw you out, he might put things in your way to bring you back to himself, but none of those things can be considered wrath of God any more than me disciplining my children needs to be seen as punitive rather than disciplinary. God lifts away the burden, covers up the guilt, and then... He considers it not. Why are we so downcast over news like that? God turns his eye. There was a, as the psalmist says, from the east is from the west. 
How does a perfectly omniscient God forget sin? I have no idea. But praise God, he does. I'm so glad that when I get to heaven, all the lustful moments, all the angry tirades, all the moments of driving on I-35 will be forgotten at the, at the judgment seat. <laughs> Praise God for that. That it won't be revisited. Because he has already visited wrath on the cross of Christ. Doesn't matter how big your sin is. It doesn't matter how deep the addiction went. Jesus died to save sinners like you. So that God would look at your sin no more. Just think of David writing this and then Psalm 133 asking a very similar question. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, literally, if you should count all the wrongs that we did, who could stand? The answer is none of us. The fact is that if justification were based on works, then none of us could stand as righteous before the Lord. But as Paul shows from Psalm 32, which is David's own words, there's a righteousness to be had apart from works. Only because the Lord is gracious enough to make that true and to count our iniquity. My friend, I, I pray that as Romans 1 through 3 brings your view of depravity even lower. You are so depraved that 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 hole knows no bottom. And yet he is so gracious. You see, the goal of the Christian life is to help people see two things. They are way more sinful than they could ever imagine. And God is far more gracious than they could ever fathom. That's a big salvation. That's big grace. So you see, our problem isn't that we, that we just don't see ourselves rightly and see sin. The problem is that we have too poor of a view of Jesus. You need a little Jesus to do away with little sins. Right? A little, if, if your sin's nothing but a hill, yeah, yeah, bring him along. But if it's a mountain, if it's an Everest that you cannot get up, You desperately need Jesus. He's the oxygen in the tank to keep you from dying at the top. You are in desperate need of grace. It's not just an add-on. It's not that you're just a generally good person. God takes that into account. And then he treats all your other things as like, "Eh, I'll just look them over. No, it was paid for at the infinite cost of the Son of God. Now, blessed are you that God doesn't see your sin. Happy, joyful people. There's some days that that truth alone is enough to dig us out of the rut of sadness. Have you ever thought, cancer will come. Car accidents are going to happen. Brain tumors, strokes, heart attacks, financial plummet. Eviction notices, divorces, alienated children, all that's going to happen. But when you put your head on your pillow at night, you can close your eyes thinking, blessed is the man that the Lord counts not his sin. And know that you go to sleep 
but the very real possibility that you won't wake up on this earth again. And know that your righteous status before God has nothing to do with what you did the day before. (sighs) Thank you, God. Paul has supported his claim with with two very crucial representative examples. Now let's think for a moment why this is good news for us. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve nothing. None of us deserve a right standing with God. And yet it is because of the one whose works were perfect, whose works were perfectly obedient, whose works were perfectly righteous. It's because of what he did that we are counted. Now the God, the question is always asked, did God just wipe it away? Did God just forget it? Like, does he just say, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't, I won't think about it. I promise. That's not how forgiveness comes. It is a free grace, but not a cheap grace. You understand the difference? Something can be free and yet be bought at a very expensive price. Gifts may be free to the one who gets them, but to the one who got the gift, it might have cost something. We have a free grace that is anything but cheap grace. Heaven's debt forgiveness plan requires nothing less than the spilt blood of the Son of God in flesh. The one through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were made. It took that son of God to take on flesh, to walk on earth, to suffer, to stumble, to have crown of thorns, to have a cross put on his back, to have his wrist nailed through, to have his black back splintered with the cross. And get this, for the eternal prince of heaven to die. How in the world do you kill God? You can't. Only if God lays down his life. And it's because he laid down his life that you can take up his. He died. This is just the the gospel that we believe for all ages. Jesus died on the cross. The bill of debt that was against us, the record of debt, as Colossians says, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And then what? Forgiven. Every lash, every crunch, the crown of thorns itself, the nails embedded in his wrist, all of that is visible proof of the debt all men owe. And yet the empty tomb is a reminder that that debt has been expunged forever. Never again. If you believe in Jesus Christ, never again shall your sin, past, present, or future, exile you from the presence of God. Eden is wide open. The flaming sword is gone because it stabbed the Son of God in the heart. Can we just... Can we just become a little excited about this this morning? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To know that, to know that tomorrow you may lose it with your spouse. Tomorrow you may just it, it, the, the body training may not be working, and you just say something to your kid that you should have never said. Tomorrow. You may just be in such a lull that you 
you, you fail on the computer. You look up images on the Instagram that you shouldn't be looking up. Tomorrow you may do everything possible to disqualify yourself from eternity and it never can. Because Jesus died to set you free. Now, what does this mean for our daily lives? How do we live out such a gospel as justification by faith alone in our day-to-day interactions? Now, Paul's going to get into this in the later sections, but I think we have to talk about it a little bit today. We cast our hope on God to consider our faith instead of our sins, right? We don't want God to count our sins. We want God to count our faith. We're all hoping, we're putting, we're putting our faith in God's grace to count faith and trust in Him and in His Son as righteousness and to deliberately not look at our sins. I ask you a question, are you counting other people's sins? You see, it's, it's funny, when it comes to me, God, don't, don't look at my sins, look at my faith. And then when I look at other people of faith, God, look at their sins. How hypocritical can we be? How anti-gospel can we be? Paul is going to get this later in Romans. He's going to ask in chapter 14, verse 10, why do you cast judgment on your brother? You see, we flip God's redemptive plan on its head. We want God to overlook all the bad and negative and rebellious, the wicked and the evil. And yet, that's all we can look at when it comes to other people. You know the sad reality of the church in its, in its typical heritage? The thing that, that churches are ten, tended to be known for is these are the people that look at your sins. Whereas the church should be a visible example of a God who doesn't consider the sin, who doesn't credit sin, but counts faith. Let me just ask you, if God looked at you the way that you look at those around you, would you be saved? If God took such a critical eye, if God took your critical eyes and put them in his eye sockets, Would you be condemned, damned, or justified? Doesn't Jesus say that by the standard of judgment that we judge, we will be judged? My friends, if we want our sins to not be counted, stop counting the sins of others. Count faith, count grace, consider grace, show grace, emulate grace. Fathers, mothers, when your children do something wrong... Don't sit there and listen out. You always do this and you always do this. And 10 times ago, you did this. My friends, parents, be models of a father who considers not the sin, but looks for faith in a relationship. If your rules are more important than a relationship, you have not emulated God. Children. If you're looking at your parents and considering they do this and they do this and they do this and they do this, you have not modeled a Jesus that looks beyond sin and looks at his own cross that he's paid for. If you're a church member looking at every sister that walks in and saying they deserve to go to hell just because of the way they dress, 
you failed to realize how naked and ashamed you are. Do not count sins that God refuses to count. Second, the passage also considers, ask, it helps us to consider what it means to be obedient people. You see, the Bible says that we are not saved by our works. But it also goes on to say that we're saved to do good works. You see, the difference is the source and the cause and the result. Right? Justification is the source. We are saved because we are wicked and depraved people. Now we can obey. God has not saved us because we obey him. But now we can obey God because he has saved us. Flip it on its head. We should do good works. We should be motivated. We should be people who consider what we do and the actions that we do and how we do them to others. But we're not saved by that. But because we've been saved by grace, now we want to do that because he's our king. Look at the great grace he's given us. Now I obey happily. Justification by faith just sends out it shoots all through life. There are a thousand different ways we can stand up here and think about how justification by faith applies to you in your daily life. And if you want to be a soulless kind of Christian, faith alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone, scripture alone, if you want to be the soulless, then you have to model that with others too. It's ironic, in my experience, some of us that believe in the soulless are the meanest, ugliest people I've ever met. The ornery reformed, right? And yet we should be the people that are modeling grace to others because we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone for God's glory alone. And that is a huge praise. So we end having seen the rich heritage of faith that we have. A heritage that reaches back all the way to Abraham and David. And we stand here justified by faith alone, just as Abraham and David was. And all God's people say, elders, if you'll go to the back, some of you may just need prayer. Um, Maybe you've had a hard week and you just need somebody to put their hand on your shoulder and to pray for you. Maybe you've not been one that's modeled justification by faith alone well in your relationships, and you need help to think that through. How can you do that better? We're here for you. But my friends, we model what we believe, or we should model what we believe. If you don't know Jesus, and you've been working your whole life to hope that on that day you'll be good enough to get in, let me just cut to the chase. You're not, and you won't. But there's faith to be had now and grace to be had now if you trust in the one who did all that was needed to secure your salvation. Pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus alone, faith in Jesus alone, faith alone, grace alone, Jesus alone, for your glory alone has saved us. And now we thank you. I pray that people will be set free by your grace from the burden and task of working for salvation so that those who do not work but trust in the one who justifies will be free from the burden of guilt. We pray this in your son's name.